morning. Good to see everybody this morning. And church, I know there's a lot of focus for you all on, on finding uh, a pastor, but I just want you to look and listen to the things that are going on up here to see that ministry goes on. And that uh, should be an encouragement to this body to know that that is going on all the time. You can be thankful for that. It's good to be back with you this morning. We're going to be finishing our lesson, if you will, on Isaiah 6. That's where we're going to be again uh, this morning. If you would turn there to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. That's what we'll be reading again. And as you turn there, if you would stand for the reading of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful weather that we're experiencing today, the hope that tends to fill our heart at the coming of springtime. Father, the coming to life once again, the the representation that is of the holiday that we just celebrate, Father, of Easter. And Father, we consider this passage and we consider the many aspects of who you are and what you mean to us as believers Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, that you would fill our minds with the truth, that we would come in contact and be impacted by the truth. That is our prayer, Father, for you are truth. Your word is truth. Guide and direct us this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we considered really the first portion of the passage last week, I believe verses 1 through 4 is kind of where we focused last week and we'll be finishing today. We we regarded Isaiah's vision and what we talked about that what Isaiah's vision consisted of was the enthroned Christ in the year that King Uzziah died. We discussed that this was God's way of reminding Isaiah that despite the anxiety that the world brings, God is the sovereign ruler of not only his creation, but his individual people. And that is what Isaiah apprehended in this vision. What not King Uzziah is the concern, Isaiah looked and he looked and he saw Christ by the grace of God. He is not only sovereign, 
The praise of the seraphim emphasized his holy character. We talked about that at length last week. In fact, his many glorious attributes are qualified by this superlative attribute of holiness. We talked last week about the fact that his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His grace is a holy kind of grace. His wrath is a holy wrath. We need to be cautious that we do not create an idol, that we do not create God after our own image, that we do not focus in on a, on a, on a specific attribute to the neglect of others. The Father indeed sent Jesus as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but we must not forget that he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. Our attention in the first four verses of this passage are focused intently upon God. That's what we're looking at in the first four verses of Isaiah 6, upon God and the majesty of Christ. Isaiah is merely the one beholding all of this. But the second part of the passage will focus on Isaiah's response to this vision. So let's look at chapter, chapter 6 and verse 5. Look at Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I find Isaiah's reaction to seeing the Lord fascinating and revealing for a couple of reasons. First words upon beholding this vision. What is Isaiah's first words on beholding the vision of seeing the majesty of Christ? Woe is me. For I am lost or undone. The word carries with it this idea of disintegration. It's a kind of a meltdown he's having. It's a very strong language. And what Isaiah is doing is pronouncing a curse upon himself. If you think about the examples of Jesus in the New Testament, you'll hear him oftentimes. If you think of the Sermon on the Mount, how does he start each phrase? Blessed. He's pronouncing a blessing on the the poor in spirit, and on and on and on in the Sermon on the Mount. How does he often address the Pharisees? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says. So it's the difference between a blessing and a curse. And Isaiah, upon beholding the glory of Christ, pronounces a curse upon himself. And I have to ask myself, is this a common or even a rational response? I mean, he is truly having a meltdown here. Why not a chest bump? Why not, you know, a fist bump? Hey, this is awesome. Is Isaiah stable? Can you imagine a modern psychological analysis of such an event? Well, Isaiah was probably spanked as a child, and his self-esteem has been injured, and that's why he's responding this way. Many thoughts would go through the mind. Why is he responding this way? Why is he pronouncing a curse upon himself? If we look at that in the, through the lens of modern psychology, again, it's, it's an aside, but it's just, <laughs> it's almost laughable sometimes when you think about regarding children, we talk about building their self-esteem, and are you kidding me? I work in pediatrics. Two and three-year-olds are little tyrants, okay? They uh, don't necessarily need their self-esteem built up. Now, I, again, you can crush a child's will, and that, that's a terrible thing, but this whole idea of we need to build the self-esteem of the children um, I can remember Jake in particular when we, we would give him instruction and tell him what he needed to be doing at a particular time would stick his chest out and say, I'll go play in the road. In other words, 
You're not going to tell me what to do. But is this experience of Isaiah common to Scripture? That's a question that we can examine. Is this common to Scripture? So let's look at some New Testament examples of similar responses. And we are going to be doing quite a lot of flipping here. So be with, bear with me. But Luke 5. Let's turn to Luke chapter 5 right quick for our first object lesson. And whether or not Isaiah's response is common to Scripture. Luke chapter 5 be a well-known passage for you. I'm going to paraphrase here a bit, but on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. So get the idea. Jesus comes down. They haven't had such good luck and uh, we're, we're, we're getting the picture here that Jesus is visiting them on the, on the lake shore. And he's getting ready to call them to be his disciples. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Think about Peter here. Peter is a fisherman. That's what he does. He's had no luck fishing. And Jesus gives a little message. He says, Peter, go back out there a little ways. Put your nets back out. I, I don't know how Peter responded, but I think Peter would look at him and go, Jesus, you are a fine rabbi. I am a fisherman. We have tried to fish all night. We haven't caught a thing. You're telling me to push my boat out here a little ways and try again? I'm going to uh, take you up on it just to be obedient. And when they had done this, listen to what happens. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. So every fish in the Sea of Galilee is jumping into Peter's nets. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Peter's response is fascinating. What would we think would be a, a rational response? Jesus, one day a month, that's it. One day a month, come down, we'll sign a little contract, I'll give you your cut. One day a month is all I'm asking. Come down, help me to fish. What, what is Peter's reaction? That's not Peter's reaction. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Peter's response is one of conviction. Depart from me, he says, when he gets a grasp of who Jesus Christ is. Mark 4. Mark chapter 4. In verse 35. Very well-known passage. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, which was common on the Sea of Galilee. These windstorms could come up out of nowhere and threaten the lives of anyone who was on the water. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, again, get the mental picture in your mind. Teacher, do you not care that we are about to die is basically what they're saying. Do you see what's going on? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased in a moment. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And listen to what it says. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There is a knowledge in that moment. Oh boy, we're not dealing with just any old person here. And their response is to become fearful. The sense of dread that they feel. Mark 9. If you want to turn over a couple pages, Mark 9, 2 to 6. The transfiguration. I'm not going to read it, but it's in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 6. And basically what you have here is God rolling back the veil, and Jesus in the uh, is shining like a bright light, it says, and he's radiant, and this intense whiteness, this purity, this holiness that the that the three are beholding. In the presence of Jesus and Elijah and Moses and Peter being always the spokesman in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I think Peter had no idea what to say in this moment. He was so taken back by what he was seeing. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, it says. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What a moment in biblical history. Job 42, if we're going to do one Old Testament example, and then we'll be moving on. Job chapter 42, I believe it's the last chapter in Job, after all of what Job has gone through. Job kind of getting to this point where he's kind of questioning God. Job 42, 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, I know that you're sovereign. Who Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did, what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sound similar? These are all in the same vein of Isaiah chapter 6. When a true knowledge comes upon us, there is a humility that should break forth in our soul knowing who God is. I find it interesting to note in verse 5 what Isaiah brings attention to immediately and why he curses himself. I find both conviction and comfort from what Isaiah is getting ready to say. His attention immediately goes to his lips. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He is convicted to the core. Makes us think of the verse From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What was Isaiah's greatest realization in this moment? He was a sinner, and he has sinned with his mouth. That's what is coming over Isaiah in this moment. He comes face to face with the holiness of God and the righteousness of Christ, and he is immediately convicted of his sin. 
In the context, he's unable to praise the seraphim are praising. Isaiah is unable to praise because he was a sinner with a dirty mouth. That's basically what that's saying right there. Important aspect of the verse. What is Isaiah's feeling upon beholding the majesty of God? We just said it. It's immediate recognition of his sinfulness. And if we're going to take something away from this verse, I believe it is this. Godly fear is essential to a right relationship with God. Godly fear is an essential to a right relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Well, what kind of fear, you might ask? Runaway fear? I work in healthcare. Some military folks in here. We know about fight or flight. Is this a runaway kind of fear that we're talking about here? Not really. I bet if you were to ask Isaiah, Peter, Job, etc., etc., if there was some other place that they would rather be at that moment, I think they would have said, not on your life. There was a fear that came over them, but if you were to ask them, do you want to go away right now? They would say, no way do I want to go away. It is a reverential fear. It is a holy fear. What does the Bible itself say about such fear? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. Beloved, a person or a nation that has lost its fear of the Lord is an individual or a nation that is on the brink of ruin. Have you ever read the book of Judges? The people are falling away from the Lord. They're losing their fear of the Lord. They're chasing after idols. And the dire refrain in the book of Judges is what? The people were doing what was right in their own eyes. It is an ominous declaration. Reminds me just off the cuff of, of Romans 1 a little bit. When God turns them over, finally, to their degrading passions. The fear of the Lord finds its foundation in the understanding of one's own sinfulness and hopeless plight before their maker as we learn from Scripture and this very passage. Do you see the tumultuous times we are living in today? Do you see the confusion and the evil in our culture? Do you see the waywardness? Do you see the lust for money and materialism and self-aggrandizement and the near worship of the almighty self? This is a consequence of the loss of the fear of the Lord. It's a consequence of pride instead of fear. So what are you telling us, Aaron? The answer to all our ills is that we should walk around hating ourselves and living in a constant state of self-loathing? Is that the answer? That's not the answer. Not at all the answer. The answer is in the following passage, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim, look, Isaiah has just pronounced a curse upon himself. He's confessed with his mouth that he's a man of unclean lips. He's, con he's made a confession of sin. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Listen to this and just bask in this for a moment. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The answer 
It's not self-loathing. The answer is God's mercy. What does God do for Isaiah? Isaiah confesses in sinfulness, in his humility before the Lord. Remember last week when I very first started, a couple things to keep in mind for this passage are holy and humble. Isaiah comes into direct contact with the holiness of God and he's immediately humbled. He confesses his sinfulness and his humility before the Lord. And what is God's response to Isaiah's humility? Does he say, yes, Isaiah, you are a pathetic, sick man. Depart from me at once. No, that is not God's way, thank goodness. God resists the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. What we find in this Old Testament passage is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah receives purification and forgiveness. Just picture this in your mind. However you need to do it, picture it. He sends the seraph over with the coal and just hear the pronouncement. Just envision this in your mind. The humility of Isaiah. I, I, I think Isaiah was at least on his knees if not prostrate. And what does Isaiah hear? Your guilt is taken away and your sin Atone for. Church, hear those words. How many of us cry out to hear those words? Your sin is atoned for. How many of us are so distracted by other less important things that we are incapable of appreciating the grace of God as we should? The enemy has so many tools for distraction in this day. TV on demand. 24-hour news cycle, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, career, sports, etc., 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 none of which is necessarily bad in themselves. But we are so happily distracted from the thing that means the most to our existence. We are truly masters at being distracted, and that becomes the turf of the enemy. God is with the humble of spirit, is he not? Matthew Henry makes this comment on this passage. Note, God has strong consolations or comfort for holy mourners. Those that humble themselves in penitential shame and fear shall soon be encouraged and exalted. Those that are struck down with the visions of God's glory shall soon be raised up again with the visits of his grace. I love that. It's so right on the passage. Listen to this. He that tears will heal. That's exactly what Isaiah just experienced. He was torn and then immediately healed. This Isaiah that experiences it has this Mental disintegration when he comes in contact with the holiness of God is also the same Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 3 that says, a bruised reed he will not break. To hear those words, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Church, I believe I'm a Christian by the grace of God and I'm a Protestant by conviction. If you go back to the Protestant Reformation and the times of Martin Luther who kind of 
ignited the Protestant Reformation. You go back to the, the early part of, of, of Protestantism, if you will. Luther was slow to try to get rid. He, he did not want to get rid of the confessional. That was a kind of a Catholic idea. The confessional of going in and confessing your sin to someone and, and then hearing the, the Latin, te absolvo, I absolve you from your sins. And we as Protestants hear that and we're like, well, I don't need nobody telling me I'm forgiven. I go straight to Jesus. True, that's true. But I feel like sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. The Bible encourages us to confess sin one to another. And not to slander the Catholics. They're not saying that the priest is the one who gives forgiveness. It's Jesus Christ who forgives sins. But church, I don't know about you, but if Jesus walked through the back door right now, and it's the same I know in my prayer, I'm just saying as a visual, if Jesus walked through the back door and said, I'm going to hear confessions from each one of you, and at the end I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder and I'm going to look into your eyes and I'm going to say, I absolve you. Your sins are atoned for. I would be sprinting to the back door. We long for such forgiveness. Verses 8 and 9. So Isaiah has come in contact with the holiness of God. He has humbled himself. He has made a confession of sin. God has sent the seraph over with the coal to touch Isaiah's mouth to purify him. I think that's both a, a, a signifier of salvation in a sword and also a, an idea that Isaiah is being called to be a prophet at that point. His lips are purified and he's going to go out and he's going to proclaim. And that's the final part of our passage. Verses, verse 8, and we're going to kind of sneak into 9 just a little bit. Verse 8 says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? A little Trinitarian taste there. Who will go for us? There in verse 8. Then I said, and here's Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. And what did God say? Go. And we're going to stop there. So what is Isaiah's response to this magnanimity of God's grace and forgiving him? And, and, and beloved, please hear me. He's not looking at Isaiah's sin through, through his fingers. He didn't say, oh no, Isaiah, you're not a sinner, you're just fine. He didn't say that either. He dealt with the sin. We deal with our sin, but we know that grace is coming our way. Verse 8 and 9. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. So Isaiah now at this point is ready for his marching orders. His sin is forgiven and his life is changed forever by this encounter. The nation of Israel is in blindness and Isaiah says, here am I. And what is God's response? Go, go Isaiah. Go to this wayward generation and tell them the truth of my word. Don't swing Bibles at them. Remember we're coming to them in a place of humility, not arrogance. Church, what does God say to us this morning? What is God saying to you? Just in conclusion, the cross of Jesus Christ is the focal point of history and our only hope as human beings. 
I hope we are able to see from the passage that we have considered the magnitude of the cross. I actually struggled over this a bit this week. I, I talked to Candace about it. I'm like, I'm afraid I'm ending this message exactly the same way I ended the last message, and maybe even the message before that. But church, I don't know of anything more important than the cross. From a posture of humility, the cross should tower over us. It is our only hope. Like the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to what? The cross I cling. And I mean when I say I cling, I mean with fingernails digging in. The Apostle Paul, a persecutor of the church and self-described chief of sinners, states in Galatians 6.14, he says this, May I never boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, and I love this passage for so many reasons, Paul says this, and I... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why nothing else but this? Because nothing else matters as much as this. After Isaiah's encounter with the living God, he was changed forever. God opened Isaiah's eyes, and then what did he do immediately? He bid Isaiah to go. Have you experienced this encounter? Isaiah's was certainly unique, but no more powerful than a saving knowledge of the truth today. The result should be the same. An attitude of humility and a posture of glorifying only in the cross. God's charge to Isaiah is so similar to the charge in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Church, I'm quick to look upon our culture with anger, happy to point my finger at the entertainment industry, the media, political pundits, courts, social media, and the like, when the true problem often lies at my own feet. In the feet of the church, are we failing to go I plead with you to come and rest in the declaration that Isaiah heard and you have experienced as well if you belong to Christ. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Bask in that. And then I urge you, go. Go in the humility and confidence of Jesus Christ. Go to a generation that is not unlike Isaiah's, spiraling out of control. Go with the mandate of Almighty God. Go as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Go. Let's pray. Father, that we might experience similar feelings when we consider your goodness and your holiness and the magnitude of your grace in sending Jesus Christ to be the atonement for our sins. Father, that that would humble us and comfort us and that we would remember the words of Isaiah, this very same prophet, 
who says, a bruised reed he shall not break, talking and prophesying about the Messiah that was to come, the same Jesus that he's just experienced in his vision. Father, help us to soak in it, to take encouragement from it, to know it down deep. Father, to know that the cost of our sin was the very death on the cross of Jesus Christ. But Father, at the same time, knowing because of faith in his name that our guilt is removed and our sin is atoned for, Father, that we take great comfort from that, abiding comfort. As we abide in the vine, we continually feel this comfort of knowing that our guilt has been removed and our sin atoned for. And in that confidence, we acquire that humility that sends us and prompts us to go. Father, that may mean to go across oceans. For others, it may mean to go across the street or to go into your own home or into our workplaces. Whatever it be that we go, and as we go, that we make disciples of all nations to the glory of God the Father. Father, help us to do this. Make us able, Father, by the application of your Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead to your glory. Give us the strength and confidence to go. In Jesus' name, amen.